Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. Matthew 13, 44 to 46. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. If we were to sum up the meaning of these two parables, I think we could call it the value of the kingdom. Uh, the great Scottish pastor of the 1800s, Thomas Guthrie, once wrote these words on the value of the kingdom, the value of salvation. He wrote, In the blood of Christ to wash out sin's darkest stains, in the grace of God to purify the foulest heart, in peace to calm life's roughest storms, in hopes to cheer guilt's darkest hour, in a courage that defies death and descends calmly into the tomb, in that which makes the poorest rich and without which the richest are poor indeed. The gospel has treasure greater far than east or west unfold, and its rewards more precious than are all the stores of gold. What he's saying is what Jesus is saying here in our text, that, which is that there is nothing in all the universe to match the priceless value of the kingdom. Uh, that's what we're going to see as we look at these two parables. Remember now, Jesus is teaching through a series of parables. Look on the service, seven, some teachers say eight parables to be exact. Uh, and they're ways of describing the kingdom. God rules over the entire universe and at all points in this world's existence it is ruled by God. Uh, the form in which that rule works is distinct from time to time. God may be mediating his rule on earth through patriarchs. He may be mediating his rule on earth through prophets or priests or kings, or he may be mediating it through the presence of the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ as he did when he was here for those 33 years. He may be mediating his rule on earth through the apostles or through the living church as he does today. But at all points in the earth's history, God is ruling. And so we're now living in the form of the kingdom of God on the earth. It's called by the title, the kingdom of heaven here in Matthew 13. And in this section, the Lord describes for us the character of God's rule on earth in this age, the period from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. Now, in this series of seven or eight parables, depending on how you classify the last one, uh, we gain insight into this period of time. The first two parables tell us about the nature of this mystery form of the kingdom. Uh, it's a mystery form because this Part of the kingdom was hidden from the Old Testament generations, but it's now revealed to us. Uh, it's a mystery that has been revealed. And we saw that its nature is described in two parables. The parable of the soils told us that in this kingdom, there will be those who believe and there will be those who do not. Uh, so in this part of the kingdom, there are both believers and unbelievers. In the second parable of the wheat and the tares, we find that the believers and the non-believers will grow together until the harvest that comes at the end. So the nature of the kingdom is that it encompasses both good and evil. The evil are not truly members of the kingdom, but they are enclosed within the rule of God as he rules for this time, at this time in the world. 
The second set of two parables speak of the power of the kingdom. Uh, in spite of the fact that good and evil are growing together, the good will triumph in the end. Uh, the good element of the kingdom in the evil world is described as a mustard seed planted in the field, which ultimately grows to massive proportions, so that although the kingdom began very small, with only the apostles, when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, it will fill the whole world. And then there was the parable of the leaven, which essentially said the same thing. The leaven represents the kingdom buried, as it were, in the dough of the world, which ultimately will penetrate and permeate and influence the whole earth. The parable shows the internal permeating influence of the kingdom, which touches every dimension of human life. And so then we've seen the nature of the kingdom and the power of kingdom. Now, in those four parables, we're, we're, we're looking at the kingdom in general. We're looking at it, as it were, from above and seeing how it operates and how it functions. And we've seen nothing about how it is personally appropriated. And so the question that naturally arises at this point is, well, then, if the kingdom covers the earth and permeates the earth and influences the earth, how does one become a part of God's kingdom? Are people simply born into it, like they are born to citizenship in a, in a country? Or is it like being a Jew, you're just born into the covenant people? Uh, are Jews automatically citizens of the kingdom because they're descendants of Abraham? Or is there something else they have to do? Are people today born into the kingdom simply by being born to parents who belong to the church? And so in this third couplet of parables, Jesus taught, teaches about the appropriation of the kingdom. Uh, that is becoming a citizen of God's kingdom, a member of his family. And these two parables, as did the previous two couplets of parables, speak to the same subject. So we will first examine the two parables and then we will look at the principles that they teach us. Uh, it's a very simple outline, the parables and the principles. Let's begin with the parables. Let's start with the parable of the hidden treasure. Look at verse 44 again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, this was a very common practice of the people in Jesus' time and not so common to us. Uh, we put our money in the bank or the credit union or we invested in stocks and bonds and securities or in real estate or some other kind of investment. That is assuming that you have money to put somewhere. Uh, but in those days, they had no banks, and so it was very common to hide your wealth by burying it someplace out in the fields where it would be highly unlikely that someone else would find it. Uh, if you read the news like I do, you may have seen that just a couple of months ago, two caches of uh, ancient Roman coins were found buried in a field in Wales, uh, which most likely placed there by the Roman soldiers who were posted at a nearby fort. There was a total of 2,770 coins, which were stamped with dates between 32 BC and 235 AD, uh, making them between 1,800 and 2,000 years old. Uh, and back in July, there were more than 700 gold coins found buried in a Kentucky cornfield. I assume it wasn't your field. <laughs> the, the, the coins were dated 
from 1840 to 1862 and are estimated to hold a value exceeding $2 million. Uh, how they got there, no one knows. One proposed scenario uh, is that a wealthy Kentuckian possibly buried his wealth to hide it from an advancing Confederate army. Um, an expert on such matters stated, quote, if you had a lot of money historically, you buried it. Banks were good, but they robbed the banks. You had to find a place that was secure, and most times people buried money. It stays in the ground, end quote. Um, and so it was usual, common, that men took whatever they considered of great value, and they buried it in the ground. Uh, this was particularly the case in Israel because it was a place of war. Uh, its history is filled with the record of one battle after another, one war after another between various armies that met there. Uh, Israel became the crossroads for fights between the Egyptians and the Babylonians, uh, the Egyptians and the Assyrians, uh, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And, of course, the Israelites fought the uh, Philistines, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians there. And inevitably, invading armies and conquerors would come in and steal and loot and plunder. So very often, when a battle was on the horizon, the people would take the valuable things out of their homes, go out into the fields, and bury them in a place that they knew of and from which they could recover those items again. Uh, the ground became the secure storage location uh, for their valuables. Josephus, the uh, famous Jewish historian of that time, in his book uh, titled The Wars of the Jews, wrote about the Romans conquering Jerusalem. And he wrote how the Romans dug the riches and wealth out of the ruins of the city. But then he said that the Jews who had survived the war found and dug up far more treasure than the, that the Romans had missed. Uh, and he explained what he was referring to with these words, quote, I mean the gold and the silver and the rest of that most precious furniture which the Jews had and which the owners had treasured up underground against the uncertain fortunes of war, end quote. Uh, so burying your gold and silver and other precious items in order to hide them was a very common thing to do in the Jewish culture. So here's a man who is in a field. And we don't know if he's simply working in that field as a laborer or if he has rented the use of the field from someone else. But for whatever reason, he's working in the field which belongs to another man. And as he is working in that field, maybe he's plowing or maybe he's hoeing the ground around some particular crop, he comes across a treasure buried in the ground. And when he finds it, he obviously recognizes that that treasure is of great worth. So he puts it back where he found it, and he goes and sells every single thing he owns, liquidates all that he possesses, and buys that field in order that he may gain that treasure. Now, at this juncture, the parable introduces us to an ethical situation. People have questioned Jesus' use of this story and said, look, this guy didn't do right. I mean, the guy uncovers a treasure and then he hides it without telling the man who owns the field and he goes and buys the field. Uh, what he should have done in discovering the treasure was take it to the man who owned the field and say, here's a treasure I found in your field. Why would Jesus tell a story in which there's unethical activity? Why would he tell a story in which a man does something that is wrong? 
So some people have been struck by what appears to be unethical behavior by the man in the parable. Well, let me see if I can help you with that. It may surprise you to know that what the man did here was not wrong under Jewish law. Uh, Jewish rabbinic law said if a man, quote, this is a quote, if a man finds scattered fruit or money, it belongs to the finder, end quote. That's what the law said. If you find lost fruit or money, it belongs to the finder. It's the old finders, keepers, losers, weepers principle. Okay? So the man is within the permission of the Jewish rabbinic law. Thus, the Jews listening to Jesus would not have perceived this man as unethical. Second, the treasure that was hidden in the field did not belong to the man who owned the field. If it was his, he wouldn't be selling his field without digging it up. Okay? Uh, he didn't know it was there. No doubt it belonged to a previous owner of that field who had buried it there and perhaps then died in battle or by accident. And so the, the current property owner had no prior right to it. But the man who uncovered it did have, by Jewish right, a claim to that money. Third, the man who found it, think about this, he was very fair and equitable. If he was not an honest man, then when he found the treasure, what would he have done? Yeah, he would have just taken it out of the ground and left it without ever saying a word. I mean, why would he go to all the trouble of buying the entire field when you got the treasure in your hand? But he didn't do that. He took that treasure that he had found, which by Jewish law, he had at the very least an equal right to with the man who owned the land. But he put it right back in the ground, liquidated every asset he had, and went and bought the entire field just so he could do what was right to get that treasure. No one was defrauded. Now, having said all that, none of that is the point of the parable. Okay? The point of the parable is that here's a man who found something so valuable that he sold everything that he had to get it. That's the point of the parable. He was so overjoyed, he was so ecstatic, that he was willing to do anything to get that treasure. The story does not involve the man's ethics, rather his willingness to sacrifice everything he had in order to possess the treasure. Now let's turn to the second parable, which is found in verses 45 and 46. It's the parable of the pearl of great value. Look at verses 45, 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now in this parable, we see that there's a merchant who is seeking fine pearls. The word translated merchant here refers to a wholesale dealer uh, whose business it was to buy and resell merchandise to a retailer. So this is a man in the pearl wholesaling business. And he would make a diligent search to gain the pearls that he hoped to sell to retailers who sold them to the public. He probably made regular visits to the coastal areas where pearls were harvested and haggled with the divers or their employees over prices. See, many upper class people of that time sought to diversify their investments by purchasing pearls, much like is done with diamonds today. Uh, pearls were the most valuable gem available at that time in the ancient world. If you owned pearls, you had a fortune. And it was easy to conceal them 
uh, in a small pouch or pocket hidden away inside of your clothing. Uh, it's much like the Jewish diamond merchants in New York City today. Uh, if you go to Manhattan's Diamond District, uh, you may see a group of Hasidic Jews standing on the street having a conversation. And if you eavesdrop on them, they might well be haggling over the wholesale price of diamonds, and they probably have a bag of diamonds concealed inside their clothes. Uh, one article I read stated this, quote, Diamond merchants, also known as diamond tares, openly do business on the sidewalk, negotiating terms for bundles of gemstones as if they were fruit in an open-air market. Others bark on cell phones and hold briefcases handcuffed to their wrist, sealing deals using lingo that outsiders can't uncomprehend. Jewelry salespeople peddle their products to passersby, luring customers in a way that evokes the merchants of an old-world bazaar." End quote. It's the, it was the same way in the ancient Middle East regarding pearls. Uh, Jesus' disciples and the others who heard him would have been familiar with such a scene. A group of Jewish wholesale pearl dealers bargaining and trading among themselves and with retail salesmen, trying to find the finest pearls that they could then sell for the highest price. It, it was incredible the extent to which people went in those days to hunt for pearls. Uh, they would search in the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the Indian Ocean. There were many pearls to be found there, uh, but they were to be found at great price, and many people died trying to gain them. They had absolutely nothing like the modern scuba gear and other diving gear that we have today. So what they did was they either free dive to the bottom or they would tie rocks uh, on ropes to their body and take a deep breath and jump off the side of their boat into the water and go to the bottom to the oyster beds and stay there as long as they could, filling a net-like sack that they had attached to their body with oysters. And once they had the sack filled, they would cut the rock that held them down free, and then they would swim to the surface carrying the sack. And this pearling, pearling industry, pearl industry was dominated by slave labor. Uh, the male slaves were used as the pearl divers. Uh, normally, more than a ton of oysters were searched in order to find at least three or four quality pearls. Uh, so it was a very labor-intensive industry. Interestingly, you may not know this, I didn't until I studied it, the pearl industry was the dominant industry in the Persian Gulf region up until the 20th century, uh, with 25% of the entire population of the region being involved in some aspect of the pearl industry. Uh, however, by 1950s, the dependence on pearls was replaced by what? Oil. oil dependence on oil. Uh, when oil was discovered and became the dominant economic trade of that region. Uh, now, when discovered, a high-quality pearl with an excellent shape and color would be worth an untold amount of money. They were incredibly valuable. They were considered so valuable that the Talmud spoke of pearls as being beyond price. Uh, some Egyptians and Romans held the pearl in such awe that they actually worshipped them. Uh, according to 1 Timothy 2.9, the wealthiest women would flaunt their wealth by adorning their hair with pearls set into gold hair combs. Uh, according to the ancient 
Roman writer Juvenal, they, were, they also wore huge pearls as earrings. Uh, the Roman historian Pliny the Elder tells the story of the Roman Emperor Caligula's wife, uh, Lolia Paulina, who was set as an example of, Ro of Roman ostentatiousness uh, for wearing a large share of her wealth to a dinner party at which she had the modern-day equivalent of $36 million worth of pearls all over her. Uh, Pliny said she had them in her hair, on necklaces, on earrings, on bracelets, and on rings on her fingers. Uh, Pliny also wrote that Cleopatra owned two pearls, each worth a half a million dollars. And in a day uh, when money was 20 times greater than its buying in its buying power than it is today. Uh, and when the Roman emperors wanted to demonstrate their incredible wealth and show how filthy rich they were, they would make a show of dissolving a pearl in vinegar and then drinking it in their wine. Uh, so pearls were extremely valuable. Uh, I know you recall what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, do not throw your pearls before swine. Why would he say that? Because he's trying to compare the worst with the most priceless. Uh, you don't give your most valuable thing to a pig. That's foolish. Uh, so pearls are perceived, were perceived like we perceive high-quality diamonds today as very, very valuable. In fact, in John's vision of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, 21, uh, the city has, what, 12 pearl gates. Uh, and each one of the gates was a single pearl. Uh, a heavenly pearl of that size would be utterly priceless, wouldn't it? Uh, because there's no earthly pearl of that size or perfection. And so getting back to our text, Jesus tells us about this wholesale merchant who went around seeking fine pearls. And he would market them because they were a good investment. And a wise man would diversify his investments. He would have some in land and some in gold coins, and which he would bury in the ground for safekeeping, and some in pearls. Importantly, the one thing you didn't do if you were a smart investor is to put everything into one investment, and that's still the rule today. Uh, but isn't it interesting that in both pearls, that's exact, both the little parables, that's exactly what the men the men did. Uh, the first man sold everything he owned to buy the one field. And the second man sold everything and bought the one pearl. They considered the value of the treasure in the field and the value of the pearl to far exceed the value of everything else in their lives. So now then, what are the principles we learn from these two parables? Well, there's at least six of them. And I think that we need to understand. And they all relate to salvation. How, that is, how to become a member of the kingdom of God. So let's start going through these. We will not finish today. The first is the kingdom is priceless in value. Number one, the kingdom is priceless in value. Both parables are designed to teach us the incomparable value, value of the kingdom of the Lord. And when we talk about the kingdom of the Lord, we're talking about salvation. We're talking about Christ himself, the gift of salvation that he gives. We're talking about the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. The preciousness of what it is to be in his kingdom. The preciousness of fellowshipping with the king. The preciousness of being a subject of the sovereign. 
The kingdom is so valuable that it is the most valuable commodity that can ever be found. And only a fool is not willing to sell everything he has to gain it. Nothing else comes close in value. In Christ's kingdom, there is a treasure. There is a treasure that is rich beyond comparison or conception. There's a treasure which, according to 1 Peter 1.4, is an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and unfading. There is heavenly treasure lying in the field of this poverty-stricken, bankrupt, accursed world, which is sufficient to eternally enrich every one of earth's poor and miserable inhabitants. There's a pearl in the dark waters of this sin-stricken world that is so valuable that all who obtain it need never fear the poverty of eternal death. Uh, that treasure and that pearl offer salvation and forgiveness and love, joy, peace, virtue, goodness, glory, heaven, eternal life. That treasure and that pearl are the gospel of Jesus that brings salvation and entry into the kingdom. Isn't it interesting how much mankind seeks physical wealth and riches while ignoring the riches of eternal life found in the gospel message? Let me look with me back at Job 28 for a few moments. Job 28. Although it was written at least 3,000 years ago, Job's description of man's tireless quest for riches sounds amazingly contemporary. And we'll skip over a few verses as we read, but let's begin at verse 1. He says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Verse 3, Man puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limit he searches out the rock in thick darkness and shadow of death. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro Far from men. In other words, this is a picture of a mine that's been put down into the ground and these guys are hanging on ropes to get down in there. They didn't have elevators to take them up and down the mine, the shaft. Verse 6, its rocks are the source of sapphires. Its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. Verse 10, he breaks out channels through the rocks. His eyes see, sees anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to the light. For all the efforts taken to, to mine and find and mine and refine and cut and polish and mount and sell and buy precious stones and metals, none of them offers anything that's worthwhile or lasting. They can't heal a broken relationship. They can't give peace to a troubled mind. They can't forgive a sinful heart. They offer little for the present, nothing for the future. Verse 12, But where can wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in place of it, nor can silver be weighed in as its price. Verse 21. Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Verse 23. God understands its way. He knows its place. 28. So he said to man, 
Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. See, the blessings of being a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ is utterly priceless and more valuable than all the possessions the richest man can acquire. There's absolutely nothing to compare to it in worth and beauty because it is an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and unfading. Roy Herbert Thompson was a Canadian-born newspaper tycoon of the 20th century. He owned 180 different newspapers in Canada and the United Kingdom and he controlled 290 other companies, including several television companies. His net worth was over $300 million. And the most famous newspaper he owned was the Times of London. Uh, at one point, he was asked how much he would give to buy the New York Times newspaper, to which he responded, I would mortgage my soul. If they could, many people would do just that in order to achieve the possessions, fame, or power for which they lust. The value of God's kingdom far exceeds that of all earthly riches and advantages put together and would still exceed them in worth even if they brought the satisfaction that they promise. Uh, yet God offers his priceless kingdom to any person, no matter how poor or insignificant, no matter how sinful, if they will but trust Jesus Christ. The price is the same for everyone. It is all they have. You give up all you have. And for those whose hearts are genuinely turned to Christ, whatever values they've clung to in the past will be ex eagerly exchanged for this priceless treasure. There's a second principle we learn from these parables. It is that the kingdom is not superficially visible. The kingdom is not superficially visible. The treasure was hidden, right? The pearl had to be salt. Neither one of them is just lying around on the surface. The treasure is not obvious to men. The value and the preciousness of the kingdom of heaven and the value and preciousness of salvation is not seen by men, although it stands there and looks them in the eye. The world looks at us, and they don't understand why we're consumed with this business of worshiping God. They don't understand why we want to give our lives to Jesus Christ. They don't understand why we want to live and obey a code of ethics and rules that go against the grain of our deepest lust and drives. They don't understand why we price this so highly when it means so little to them. So the kingdom is not superficially visible. Luke 17 verses 20 and 21 tells us that when Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look here or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom will not be observable physically until Jesus returns and establishes his millennial rule over the earth. At that time, Matthew 16, 27, 28 says, The Son of Man is going to come 
in the glory of his father with his angels and men will see the son of man coming in his kingdom. But Jesus said that his present kingdom is not of this world. It says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that a natural man does not accept the depths of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually examined. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it isn't that apparent. Even though the message is here and the word is here, they don't see it. They're blind. It's not superficially visible. Even when the truth of the gospel is clearly presented to him, the natural man cannot see it. Uh, as long as he resists the moving of God's spirit in his heart, he cannot see past the spiritual blinders that Satan has placed over his eyes. Some people never bother to look beyond the surface. They're so busy fiddling around with the trinkets and toys and pebbles that lie on the surface that they never get to the treasure underneath. One unknown writer put it this way, quote, Under the form of a man, under the privacy and poverty of a Nazarene, was the fullness of the Godhead, hidden that day from the wise and prudent of the world. The light was near them, and yet they did not see it. The riches of divine grace were brought to their door, and yet they continued poor and miserable, end quote. That's so true. There have been many times that you and I and others have described this treasure of the gospel, the, the beauty of this gospel pearl to people who have just turned their backs and walked away. And they don't care. They don't want it. And they don't understand its inestimable value. Why? Because it's not superficially perceived. It's not something they can see easily. It requires a work of God in the heart to cause someone to seek the treasure and to see its worth. That's why it says in Matthew 7, 14, that the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are how many that find it? Few, few that find it. And that's why Matthew eleven twelve says that the kingdom is taken by violent men who take it by force. In other words, it must be pursued with great effort. One more thing to keep in mind about this matter. The full value of a pearl may not be evident to an average person who may admire its beauty and yet be unaware of its pricelessness. You know, many people have a passing admiration for Jesus and the gospel, but they're totally unaware of the supreme and priceless gifts that could be theirs by belonging to him. They see the pearl in plain view, but in their worldly eyes, it has little worth. John 1.10 says he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. They saw him, their creator in flesh, yet they did not recognize him as such. There are many people sitting in the pews of churches all over America today who are just like that. They admire Jesus. They 
may even offer worship to Jesus, but they fail to see him for all that he is, and thus they miss the most valuable treasure there is in this universe. It's not in my notes, but let me just, just this week, I had an opportunity to attend uh, a retiree picnic for retirees from the sheriff's office. And saw a lot of people that I worked with for many years and um, had a wonderful time. And they would start as groups like that of retirees do. Well, what are you doing now? So I'd say, well, I'm one of the pastors at my church. And you would be amazed how many, oh, that's nice. And then whoosh, away they go. They, they don't want to stick around to hear more. Um, it's almost like I had some communicable disease. So, yeah. So, so the parable, so, the, so then the kingdom is valuable and it's also hidden from the superficial lookers who do not want to look deeply into the truth that is hidden in the word of God. That's why Luke 13, 24 says, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You see, taking an, the average run-of-the-mill superficial approach to life, just trotting down the path of life with never a thought for anything that is deep or profound or of true value is not going to reveal the truth to you at all. It isn't on the surface. There has to come that desire at some point to respond. Even in the case of the man who found the treasure, he had to pursue that which he originally found. And in every case, the heart had to be prepared by God to see the value of the treasure, to search for the pearl. Otherwise, the individual would have never known. They would have never known to seek the pearl or the treasure as their own. Let's, uh, let me see how much this... Let's look at one more and we'll stop. And that is, the kingdom is personally appropriated. The kingdom is personally appropriated. This is the crux of the parables. The kingdom is personally appropriated. The previous two parables of the mustard seed and the leaven teach us the idea that the kingdom is influential, that it's large and pervasive. But they don't say anything about personal appropriation. That's why Jesus gives us these two. You have the man in verse 44, another man in verse 45. We're dealing with individuals, and each of them finds something specifically for himself and appropriates it unto himself. That's very important. Listen carefully. This shows us that you can sort of be in the kingdom under the dominion of God and not be a member of the kingdom. If you're alive on earth, if you live in the universe, you are under God's rule because he is the sovereign of the universe. And so in a sense, you're in the kingdom over which he is the ruler. But you're not a subject of the king. You're not a personal member of the kingdom. They're just like a lot of people in the church who aren't Christians. The world is under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ, but not a part of his true kingdom. That's why in Matthew 8, 12, where he talks to the Jews, he says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness 
in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, there are some Jews who, although they were Jewish and under the covenant of God with Israel, are going to forfeit all that that means because they've never personally come to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. In Romans 9, 6, it says, They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So you could be a physical Jew, a part of God's chosen people with whom he has an eternal covenant, and yet never be a true member of the kingdom. And the same is true today. There are people on the earth who are, who are under God's reign but have never appropriated the kingdom. Some people think that because they grew up in a Christian home, that makes them a Christian. Others think that their regular attendance at some kind of church makes them a Christian. Others think that because they were baptized as an infant, that automatically made them a Christian. That's not the case. Appropriation of the treasure is an individual matter. And so it's at the point of personal appropriation that we come in these two parables. It's not enough to be under the influence of the kingdom. It's not enough to just be under the influence of the church or under the influence of Christianity. It's not enough to just nest in the branches of the mustard tree or to be touched by the leaven with its permeating influence. There must be personal appropriation. And at some point in time, in order to do that, men and women must come to the point where they recognize the value of it. The two men in the parables, having recognized the value of what they found, sold everything they had in order to have it. They acquired that on which their desires had been set. That speaks of individual appropriation. Yes? So I know that the parable it doesn't tell the whole story. So God would have to have drawn them mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. uh, Right. Right. Yeah. It tells us here, this speaks, as I said, of individual appropriation. It tells us that the salvation doesn't consist in merely seeing the value of Christ's work and wanting it for oneself. Christ must actually become ours by faith, by means of appropriation. See, faith has three elements. It has, there's the intellectual element in which we recognize the truths of the gospel. There's the emotional or heart element in which we find ourselves drawn to, the, uh, to, to what we recognize. And there is the volitional element in which we actually make a commitment to him uh, whom the gospel presents. Salvation is a personal matter. People are not saved by Jesus in mass. They're saved one by one. The man in the field did not allow someone else to buy the treasure, hoping he might share in it. The merchant didn't form a co cooperative of several merchants to chip in some money to, in order to buy the pearl of great price. Each one makes the purchase for himself. And that brings us to the end of the third principle. There's a fourth principle, but you'll have to come back next week to hear that and the ones after that. Any other comments or questions before we go? Yes. 
Presbyterian Reformed tradition believe in infant baptism. Mm -hmm. What is what is the thought on their behalf? I don't think they think that it saves somebody. No, they don't think that. No, they don't think that. They they believe that infant baptism is a sign of the covenant like circumcision was a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. And because of time, I'm not going to go any further than that answer. Okay? You can talk to Frank afterwards. He knows everything about it. Yeah, right. No. Some feel like that. Yeah. And, and it can be misleading to someone who was told about their baptism as an infant. And they may be in a sound Presbyterian church growing up and be told about their baptism as an infant, and that could be confusing to them. Oh, I'm part of the covenant people. Mm, no. No. All right. Let's close with prayer. I had Frank pray before. I'll close this time. Father, thank you for uh, our time together and your word. Lord, it's so important that we understand the treasure of the gospel how valuable it is, how all-consuming it is, should be for us, that we give up everything for Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray now as we go into the worship service, that you would fill our hearts with praise, we would glorify you in a way which is pleasing and honoring to you. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.